Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast that is usually hosted by me, Kim Ugra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. But this week we have an awesome guest host filling in, Book Riot's co-founder, Jeff O'Neill, uh, recording this podcast on Sunday, April 29th. Uh, so welcome to the For Real podcast, Jeff. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I mean, I, I, I'm but a Padawan when it comes to nonfiction, Kim. Um, <laughs> I, let's see, I, we met... We've met a while ago, but so I first read mm-hmm. your blog when I was running my stupid little blog. Um, and so this yes. is eight years, mm-hmm. something like this now? Something like that. Yeah. Original contributors. is a. I know. All the way uh, back. All the way back to the pre-BR days. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm sorry yeah. to take. I'll keep Alice's seat warm for her for, for when she gets back. But, yes. uh, you know, a little, little, a little pinch hitting here. I got a question for you just real quick. Yeah. Sure. I, I don't know if I know this. Do you read only nonfiction, Kim? No. Oh, no. Oh, okay. All right. um, I sort of got a reputation for it because I, I started blogging mostly when I started in grad school and mm-hmm. I was reading a lot of narrative nonfiction because I went to school for journalism. And so that was a lot of what I was reading and writing about when I first started blogging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it just kind of stuck as a niche. And um, But no, I read probably about half and half, okay. I think. All right. I was just curious. Yeah. I think I think now that you say that, like I remember seeing on your Instagram some of the recent novels and stuff you've read recently. Okay. So you're not really a new yeah. show, but we were just talking before we started recording how like maybe yeah. two of the biggest nonfiction book related news yeah, things of the right? of, of I don't know, since when? I I'm not sure. so well, you take the lead and so I can react I really, or do whatever you want to do it. Yeah. Well, so we don't have it on the agenda, but Higher Loyalty by James Comey coming out is like the biggest nonfiction thing of the year, uh, which is fascinating to me because I honestly thought Fire and Fury was going to be like the big nonfiction book of the year. Um, And it was. And then (laughs) Comey's book has just like blown that one out of the water in terms of sales and in terms of media coverage. And I don't know if that's because the book is so much better or just because like Comey's more media savvy than Michael yeah, Wolf I, was. I don't know. What do you think? This, the sales, I mean, to start with, I think 600,000 in the first week is mm-hmm. the number um, compared to, I think, 200,000 for Fire and Fury. And I, one of the problems with Fire and Fury is like, I think they had a supply problem because there, there weren't enough print books. Like you couldn't buy yeah. it. So that number is a little bit it's not it's not exactly apples to apples because you can go get higher loyalty on the day of. There there were plenty of copies go around. I don't know if they learned from Fire Fury or what. Yeah. Um Rebecca and I They did. I saw a story that said the um the publisher they deliberately printed a ton yeah. of them because they didn't want to run out right away. Rebecca and I were speculating on the 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 Book Riot podcast, actually, the episode that will be out. At, if this one's out, you can hear us speculate about this too. I don't know why. I, I, I didn't think there'd be this much interest in the Comey book. Maybe it's that was uh, complete projection of my own sort of disinterest. I didn't think, it, you know, we were saying like, maybe it's just people outside observers, like he's not going to break any news here. Like he's obligated by law and other things not to really 
you know, spilled the beans so much. Um, I think maybe it's because he draws interest both from anti-Dems and anti-conservatives uh, or, you know, pro, pro the other way, if you want to do it that way, because of what he did at the end of the election and what he's done since and getting fired by Trump and all this stuff, like a very polarizing figure. Also, he is, you know, the highest ranking person to go on the record in a book length form about all this business. So I, I'm a little bit surprised. I, I guess in following it, there's not I haven't found nuggets that have really broken through sort of the, the consciousness of like what's in this Comey book that's that interesting. And really, it's it doesn't seem to be that much. Um, I, I'll be interested to see if it sticks around. Like, is any of this stuff going to stick? I, I'm not really sure what to say about it. But, at the very least, the first week sales, people are buying that book. And that puts it on the contender to be, I thought Fire and Fury would be the best-selling book of the year, but this one's already selling more. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll see. I guess we shall see. Yeah, it's interesting because I, too, was not that interested in it coming out. And it, I sort of almost forgot what the pub date was because right. I was just so like, whatever. Because I feel like when they first talked about it and marketed it, it was they didn't say anything that he was going to talk about Trump. Like, they very explicitly were like, it's going to be about leadership. And yes, that's right. That's where so I was right. like, yes. like, that doesn't sound very interesting to me. And then there's at least the stuff that's getting news coverage is the stuff about Trump, obviously. Right. Um, and so it's interesting that like kind of the way they initially marketed the book and the way that the media coverage of the book is happening are not mm -hmm. totally lining up. And I probably in a good thing for James Comey, because I bet the sales are higher for everybody focusing on the Trump stuff and just like a book about leadership from a guy that at this point, like was widely respected. And now it seems like no one really likes. Yeah. And there's all this stuff too. I mean, it's hard, not, it's hard to ignore the commercial aspect. Like this is a multi-million dollar book deal. He's doing it mm -hmm. to sell books. You know, um, I, I don't know that there's the, the funny, the, the, the irony, right. It's, it's called a higher loyalty that's being sold for profit. So I don't know, man, I don't know what to say about that. I guess that's how it is in the publishing business writ large, but it's hard for me to see this as anything, but like James Comey trying to get his side of the, you know, what's the kind of the playing the James mm -hmm. Comey corner, which I can totally understand, but it's like, a, it's not, these aren't the Pentagon papers. Let's put it that way. Right. This isn't, um, uh, all the president's men. And I think that's what people are kind of waiting for. Rebecca and I were speculating too, like they were looking for something yeah. to hold on to. Like who's going to go on the record in a story mm -hmm. as Ben Bradley famously says in the, in the movie. Well, he, he adds a coloring word in there that I can't say now, but who's going to go on the record in the story. We're sort of still waiting for someone to go on the record. And Comey feels like the closest person yes. to really go on the record and say, I was there. This is what happened. Here's the smoking gun. And until we get that, I, I think the, we're going to have an appetite for mm -hmm. these, but they're going to they're going to bloom in interest and then fade away. Like in two months, we're not going to be talking about this book. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but in two months, no one's going to be talking. No, about we're this not. Book. No, I think it fades away. Yeah, my boyfriend and I have an ongoing debate about which former Trump cabinet member is going to be the first oh, one yes. to flip um, and to just like <laughs> spill the beans on Who's everything. My money is on, um, <laughs> on uh, Rex Tillerson because um, he. <laughs> he doesn't have any uh, no, he to give, yeah. I think. But I was saying to Rebecca on our show, if you could get anyway. one, I, the one I want from t the Trump world is, you, you know, Melania Trump's got a book in her. That would just be unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, that, the worm would really have to have oh, turned yeah, for that to be the thing that would come out. But um, if you could sort of like, yeah. if you got sort of one wish from the genie for who could write a 500 page honest book, I think that's the one. <laughs> Um, I guess unless you pick Trump himself, like it takes him off the table. I think Melania's got the most. What about Baron Trump? 
Yeah, his, uh, I think like, that would just be so sad. I don't know. That's my opinion. <laughs> that that would be my yeah, opinion. Where a, I think, yeah, that's a good if, point. If your goal, sort of like mine, is frankly, is to is to to, to blow the whole thing open, uh, she she would she would have some things to say. I I, I would guess. Speaking of blowing the whole thing open. See, this is what you do when you have a you have a yes. guest who you have a ghost that does this. Good you have a guest, a ghost. No, now I'm really uh, mixing metaphors. Uh, when you have a guest that does this. So, speaking of blowing the whole things open, I, I made you talk about another news story, or I, I requested another news story. Yes, please tell us. Oh no, I was throwing it to you. Oh, I'm sorry, that's my fault. Oh, you're so, throwing it to me. No, I'm no, sorry. I, no, I, I'll, I'll do it. So, I'll be gone in the dark by Michelle McNamara, which is um, an investigation. I don't even you you two can tell me more about the book, but she took up the cause of looking into mm-hmm. trying to figure out who the Golden State Killer was. Um, is I guess assuming he she was still alive, and this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to admit, I'm not completely up on the details because this kind of stuff skeeves me and everyone else out. I'm sure, like everyone else, but I especially try to not to look at it unless unless my eyes are sort of covered or my fingers are covering my eyes. Was caught this yeah. week in Sacramento, California, or allegedly. I don't know what we have to say here. It sounds like this is the dude, but you know, trial, due process, all that good stuff. Um, yep. Is was caught, and from what I can tell, tell me wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is that she seems to have gotten a lot of it right. Like she wasn't necessarily pointing at this particular dude, but a dude like this dude is kind of who she was zeroing in on. Like he's a swimmer, former cop or military, something like this. Um, And I think there's still details to come out about how they actually caught him, but it sounds like they had some DNA from the the file 40 years ago. And through... Mm -hmm some other DNA database that he voluntarily opted into, as far as I can tell, for some other purpose. Yeah, so I, as I understand it... it t- so t- the t- tell killer, me the real thing. <laughs> <laughs> so the Golden State Killer is a, um, a person who committed more than 40 sexual assaults and multiple, I think more than 10 murders in the San Francisco, California area in the 70s and 80s. And so he's been on the loose ever since then, and it is extremely creepy. Um, But they caught him using DNA evidence, but um, a relative of his had put DNA into one of those like ancestry things, you know, 23andMe or whatever. I don't know which one, Um, but they had put DNA into that. And so then the cops apparently put DNA also from the Golden State Killer into this thing and found this relative. And then they were able to sort of circulate around to find a suspect who fit all of the other criteria that they had and then find some actual DNA from something that he disposed of mm-hmm. to confirm that he was the guy. So there, it's exclusively DNA evidence. And then kind of he matches the other profiles and things that they needed to find. But yeah, in the book, um, in I'll Be Gone in the Dark, she... So she didn't get to finish it because she passed away from uh, in her sleep from apparently a, a mix of a drug overdose and illness um, of some kind. Um, I can't remember the details on yeah, that. I don't it know makes the details. Yes. Um, but so she passed away before finishing the book. Um, and so the book has a lot of sections in it that are reconstructed based on her notes and her extensive reporting that she had done. Um, and one of the things that she had been trying to kind of figure out that she hadn't gotten to go into yet was using DNA evidence and submitting it to one of these websites, um, which is what the cops ultimately did. Uh, so that's really cool, I think. Um, 
that kind of her approach. It's it, I, I don't know enough about these twenty three me ancestors or Gotham things. I guess when you when you submit your DNA or whatever, I guess you must click some sort of release box button that no one reads the fine print on that says they can compare it with cops. Like I found that part kind of incredible. Well, that was one of the things that. Sh- that was one of the things in the book, I think, that she wasn't sure about, that she was still trying to figure out. It was like, if you could even do that, if that was yeah. legal. Because um, it's it's really like kind of creepy to think that that, that might be the case. Um, that, yeah. because yeah, it wasn't his. It was a, a circled around or whatever. Um, but yeah, so they he, a man, um, a former police officer, he's in his 70s now, has been arrested and charged in a couple of the murders, I think, but not the whole... Yeah. Um, not everything yet, but I imagine they're going to be trying to, I mean, at this point, it doesn't matter, I guess, yeah, how many you charge him right. for. He's going to jail for the rest of his life if convicted of any of them. Amazing. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of an interesting, like, news story associated with the book, which just came out in February, I want right. to say. And apparently they're going to um, make an HBO series. Um, documentary, yeah. Or HBO series, Michelle yeah. McNamara's book. And I guess the meta stuff about her and the 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 killer being, you know, we think at this point captured would make for a fascinating sort of, you could see Mindhunter mm-hmm. kind of uh, story told about it would yeah. be fascinating to see as well. So that's, that, that, see, that's how I do these things. Yeah, I, I, I like think the news stories because that's what we do on the other show um, that I do. So I, I, this, this is my wheelhouse, yeah. but now we're ready for your wheelhouse, which is talking about nonfiction books. Is that next? Is that the next part of our story? Yes. We yeah. are jumping into books. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to do the first sponsor we've got for this week's show. Uh, and the sponsor is The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind by Barbara K. Lipska. And um, synopsis is that uh, as a deadly cancer spread inside her brain, neuroscientist Barbara Lipska was plunged into madness, only to miraculously survive with her memories intact. In the tradition of my stroke of insight and brain on fire, this powerful memoir recounts her ordeal and explains its unforgettable lessons about the brain and mind. Uh, and if this title sounds familiar, it is because I recommended it in new books a nice. few shows ago. Um, I still haven't gotten to read it because I'm waiting for it at the library, but it sounds so great. So she is a director uh, at the Nas- of the Brain Bank at the National Institutes of Mental Health, and so she's an expert in neuroscience and schizophrenia and other mental illnesses. Um, and so what's fascinating is that she had this experience where she essentially went mad due to an illness, but remembers everything that happened to her while that was happening, which is really rare in those kinds of cases. And so she's able to write about the experience of, of madness from the perspective of a neuroscientist who understands what all of that means and someone who has experienced it themselves, um, which just sounds awesome. And the comparison to Brain on Fire is a really good one. That book is excellent. So if this is anywhere close to that, I think it'll be a really great read. Um, So yeah, that is our sponsor, The Neuroscientist Who Lost Her Mind by Barbara K. Lipska. And thank you for them. Can I say two things about that book? Yes. I'm fascinated too. I don't know if I'm going to have the courage to read it because – I don't know. It's one of those selfhood identity yeah. things. Like, you know, this is the book you, if, if Oliver mm-hmm. Sacks were still alive, he'd be writing about this kind of thing, you know, the, or, you know, it sounds like she's more than equipped to write it herself, but it sounds like an Oliver Sacks case study, except it's like, it's like awakenings, except if one of the people woke up was Oliver Sacks, yeah. like is also experiencing at the same point. It's like so strange. <laughs> um, it was a sponsor for book right deals, which I actually just handed the the mic off to um, Amanda and Sharifa to, to do on a daily basis. But I also look at the ad. It was the sponsor one day, and I look at the the performance of the sponsor to see how many people click on the book. The interest was like triple what we would normally see for just a for a run of the mill sponsor for this book. So I don't know what that means. I thought that was fascinating. Like, really, it, it was several standard deviations. Yeah. 
more activity on the on the sponsor than we anything we'd seen recently. So I don't know what that means. I think it's a compelling hook. I don't. We're going to do Mother's Day picks here in a minute. I, yeah. I don't even know what the parameters for a Mother's Day book are necessarily. But if it's interesting women doing interesting things, like that's not a bad way to go with Mother's Day picks. And maybe that's how I picked my books. I don't know. I don't want to tip my hand. But this sounds. This <laughs> if you if you got a mom who's interested in, in women doing stuff that's that's unusual, this would be an interesting pick. Now. Sometimes mm-hmm. Mother's Day books have a little bit of a, a stigma is the wrong word, but it's like a patina of like soft of being, you don't nothing too challenging, which I think is garbage. Moms can, mm-hmm. moms are amazing, but this one definitely has an edge to it. So uh, maybe be careful. But if you've got a mom who likes science yeah. that likes, um, you know, a, a lot of us have, have aging parents and grandparents are going to deal with this kind of thing eventually. I don't know if that's a, a, a terrifying or what, but I think this might be an interesting one for if you've got a, a nonfiction – well, if you're listening to this show and you're listening to our stupid picks for Mother's Day stuff, then then you are looking for nonfiction picks. But I think this would be a fascinating <laughs> one uh, to give to a mom. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think so. I might be a little scary, but a yeah, definitely. you got to know your own yeah. mom. You know your own mom better yeah. than I do, people out there listening. Yeah, your mom. We don't know your mom. I don't know what you want us to say. Yeah. But if, she, if, she, if your mom – a matriarchal unit likes a little science, isn't afraid a little scary, or a little bit dis- scary is me wrong, just disturbing, unsettling. You know, however you want to go about unsettling. unsettling so. Yeah, you're you're waiting for. Are you yeah. going to do? Cool. Do you do audio nonfiction? Have we talked about this? Or I'm probably you probably. I do sometimes. You know, but, yeah. Um, I only do when I do audio. It's only nonfiction. I do nonfiction and print too. But I think maybe this would be one where. I might feel better about it on audio just because she came back. Like I'm hearing her and she's all right narrating it. I think, I think it's narrated by the author. Yeah. I wonder if she narrates it. That would be cool. But I was, I was hoping to see that. All right. What are we doing next? Cool. Tell, tell me where, right. we're, where we're going next. Next we're going with new books. All right. So I will start. Um, yeah, please do. Uh, the one I have is one that I'm probably about halfway finished with and it's really great. So I'm excited to get to talk about it a bit. And it's called The Girl Who Smiled with Beads by Clementine Wamaria and Elizabeth Weil. And it came out uh, April 24th from Crown. Uh, And so this is a book about uh, refugees from Rwanda. So Clementine, when she was six and her 15-year-old sister, Claire, uh, the two of them were forced to run away from their home and escape the Rwandan massacre. Um, They spent six years migrating through seven different African countries, looking for safety and trying to find some place where they could be, trying to reunite with their family. Um, And eventually, when uh, Clementine was 12 and her sister was in her 20s, uh, they were granted refugee status and they were able to come to the United States and live live in Chicago. Um, At that time, Claire had a couple of children. um, And so she was kind of living in Chicago as a single mother. And Clementine got to live with an American family and sort of had this American dream type of life, except of course she's a Rwandan refugee. And so she's carrying with her just Mm. a ton of baggage. Um, And the book is really, really good so far. Um, The way they structured it is really smart. They will go from a chapter about her time in Africa and their fleeing and the experiences they were having in refugee camps. And then it'll alternate with a chapter from when they came to the United States. And so you're seeing two really challenging experiences that are completely Mm. different from each other and how they kind of bounce around and how the things she experiences as a refugee affect how she interacts with people in the United States that she meets and is trying to get to know and get along with and trying to kind of come into this new life that she has. And also how it's just, it's really interesting the way that they did that. And I think it's really effective. Um, So I, I really, I really have enjoyed this. Um, So I definitely am going to try and finish it soon and then 
probably fully recommend it as something I, I read. But uh, that is The Girl Who Smiled Beads by Clementine Wamaria and Elizabeth Weil. I, I, I don't know. I didn't uh, check to see if these are things we have to have already started or not, but I just got this uh, using my Audible credit for the month. Um, mm-hmm. I, I tip my hand a little bit. I do some nonfiction on audio, but I downloaded, I had pre-ordered it and it's, you know, sitting on my phone in my pocket right now. I don't know why I, I cared to tell you exactly where it is in space and time related to me, but the book is called Minority Leader by Stacey Abrams, who is currently running for the governorship of Georgia. And this book is... You know, the subtitle is How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change. But basically, it is a career advice book explicitly for women and people of color, which we might get to this at the end of the show or not. But one thing I do with my nonfiction listening is try to get better at, you know, helping run the business that I, that I try to help run. I came from academia. I didn't know anything about running a business. Uh, but being an inveterate reader, one thing I did when I realized, holy geez, I am trying to run a business is... I started reading books about how to be a manager, how to run a business, how to do marketing, and so on and so forth. And one of the things I like to do is read about you know different people who've had success and how they've done it. Some are better than others. Um, some are great. Some are garbage. But one thing that is true is that these types of books by people of color, especially women of color, are very, very rare. Um, a lot of a lot yes. of um, I don't have to tell you this, but you know, share. Uh, Boy, uh, Cheryl Sandberg, sorry, I always get the name mixed up with Cheryl Strait. I always want to transpose the names. Mm. Um, Her Lean In was also, I thought, excellent book. But also, I don't know that it was criticized so much, but in talking about how much publicity that book got there, you know, a lot of people were talking about the absence that it kind of threw into relief, which is, where's a similar book for women of color, people in color writ large? Um, and so I'm always have my mm-hmm. eyes out for something like this is, and this is the first one I've seen that explicitly says real world advice for women and people of color, offering hard won insights for navigating worlds that until now were largely the territory of white men alone. I've seen some books by, you know, successful um, people of color, underrepresented identities, but one that's explicitly says that I don't think I've seen before. Um, If you out there have heard of one, read one, email Kim and Kim can email me, (laughs) (laughs) but I'd sure like to see it. So I'm really, and she's hot in the middle of a Georgia race. So I think this book is part of her political campaign, which I don't care. I'll read the book anyway. Um, she went. She, you know, she was a working poor family in, in Gulfport, Mississippi. Made it to Yale Law School. Then, you know, was a C level executive, and then became the first woman to lead either party in the Georgia General Assembly and the first African American to lead in the Georgia House of Representatives. And if she wins. Um, the Georgia race for a governor, I think she would be the first black woman to be governor of a state in, in the U.S. I think that's true. Wow. Um, so I'm very interested to see what the book is like. Uh, so th- uh, is that is that what you do? Do you recommend books you are excited about but haven't yeah. read in this mm-hmm. spot? Okay, I hope I didn't screw things up for you. Yeah, we go back and forth. Yeah, I try to, yeah, it just depends. Sometimes we haven't read them. Sometimes we've read them a little. Sometimes we're just excited, yeah. So that's a, that's a great pick. Yeah, I'm excited. So anyway, I should say the name again, Minority Leader, uh, which is a great title, by the way, double entendre, maybe a triple entendre, by Stacey Abrams, A-B-R-A-M-S, uh, out from Macmillan now. Uh, I'm looking at it right now, Macmillan Audio. It's a seven-hour audiobook, which I have to say is kind of my favorite length. I like a seven-hour audiobook. It's a good length. You, get just, you, get, you feel like you sink your teeth in, but you're not looking at 14 hours, which, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. there's some good 14-hour audiobooks out there, but it's like, wow, geez, that's a lot. Especially if you're doing it like on commutes and stuff, like seven hours is yes. a couple of weeks maybe, where 14 yeah. is like you're in there a long time. 
Can I, can I, can I ask you what's the longest audiobook you've ever listened to? Oh, good question. I listened to a biography of Catherine the Great that was like 40 hours long. <laughs> oh, yes. Mine, mine, is, mine is similar. Uh, management by Peter Drucker, which is, again, one of my uh, Busman's MBA. A History of Business Management as a Field. Oh, God. Uh, 44 hours. Oh, my God. Surprisingly, surprise. I guess, you know, it's one of those things where if you're not in management, it's probably real boring. But if you are in management, it's only sort of boring. Uh, but anyway, it's, uh, I, I, I'm glad I listened to it. I, I don't think I would recommend it out of hand, yeah. but that's the longest one I've listened to too. All right. I guess you're up for another new book pick. Are we okay. doing two each? I am. Okay. Yeah. Two each. I'm ready. Um, so my next pick is uh, Beneath a Ruthless Sun by Gilbert King, which also came out April 24th from Riverhead. Uh, and this is a like historical true crime book, which is one of my favorite little like mm. niches. Um, so the reason this one got my attention is uh, Gilbert King, he previously won the Pulitzer Prize for a book called Devil in the Grove, which is a uh, story about Thurgood Marshall and his defense of the Groveland Four, who were four black teenagers accused of raping a white girl in Groveland, Florida. Um, the Of the four of them, I think... Two of them, I can't remember all of the details, but multiple of them were killed by the racist sheriff. Um, and it was just like this whole terrible, terrible situation. Um, and so, But it's a stellar book, just a really great accounting of that. And it won the Pulitzer in 2013. So this book, Beneath the Ruthless Sun, is set in the same region, the same area. It has the same racist sheriff as the main villain, a guy named Willis McCall. Um, and he's just, he's just the worst. Like he's a just a terrible human. Um, and in this book, the wife of a Florida citrus baron is raped. So McCall goes to try and find suspects because she says it was a black boy who raped her. Um, he settles on this mentally ill 19-year-old kid. And this kid is uh, sent to prison uh, accused of this rape. Um, and it's about so it's about him and what happens to him. And it's also about this um, crusading journalist named Mabel Norris Reese, who um, after the Groveland Four sort of had her... Um, I don't know what you want to call it, like her awakening to racism in the South and finally like wants to do something about it in her position as the small town newspaper editor. Um, and so she pursues this case to try and help try to save this poor kid who's been accused of raping mm. this white woman and sent to jail um, and trying to break open this whole conspiracy around it. So um, I see I started reading it last week, so I'm a few chapters in, but uh, the writing is really, really, really good. Like you just get drawn in right away and he's got a very just great accessible style. And um, it's one of those books that you read it and you think like, I can't believe that this is a thing that happened not that long ago. <laughs> um, it's just like, you yes. know what I mean? Like it's, it's astonishing to me, like just how awful all of this was. Um, and so it's, it's just really interesting and really good. So I'm, I'm excited. It's a big, just a chunkster of a book. So it's going to take mm. me a while to get through, but uh, it's called Beneath a, Beneath a Ruthless Sun by Gilbert King. I also... Here's my problem. I like true crime. I'm also a wimp. So I need crime that's not <laughs> too violent or scary. So that, that my pick is that, which is, I don't know if you've heard of this book. I didn't even tell you what my picks were. The Feather Thief, have you heard of this, Kim? Mm -hmm. By Kirk Wallace Johnson. Oh, yeah. Um, so here's the story, basically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's 2009, and this 20-year-old American who, who plays a flute was just performing a concert at the London's Royal Academy of Music. And he takes, after the performance is over, he gets on a train, he goes to the British Museum of Natural History, you know, one of the great natural history museums in the world. And he goes there to steal 150, let's say hundreds of rare bird skins 
that were collected 150 years earlier by one of Darwin's contemporaries, this dude named Alfred Wallace, um, and he stole them. This flautist, 20 years. This is just this is 10 years ago, and Kirk Wallace Johnson was he's he's a he's a writer, but he was fly fishing in New Mexico a few years after this happened, and his fly fishing guide told him about the story because apparently the reason that this collection was so valuable is there a segment of oddball weirdos that are super into the Victorian <laughs> art of sa- salmon fly fishing. And apparently, and I haven't started the book yet, it just came out, um, This these bird skins are extraordinarily valuable for people in this, in this you know, hobby, obsession, whatever. And so Kirk Wallace Johnson then got into, he wanted to know what happened. And this is the story, it's called The Feather Thief, of this guy, this 20-year-old flautist, stealing a bunch of bird skins uh, you know, century-old birdskins from the British Museum. Mm-hmm. So I get my true crime thing. I get my another thing. I like in nonfiction too. I like a really specific. I like people's obsessions. I like to read about people that are obsessed with something. Me too. And so I get a little of that. Mm-hmm. I get some history. I get. I, you know, I read almost anything about Darwin. So I don't know. Uh, the Venn diagram of just interests are really, really crossing ley lines here, and I'm super into this one. Um, so that's it's out now. Is it out now? Yeah, it came out on the 24th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson, 8-hour yeah. audiobook. Now that I'm looking at it, so that's also eight that's also in my that's right right that's the pocket, eight, you know, 7 to 10 hours. That's The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Johnson. I it's like I think I'm hoping it's kind of in the vein of like, you know, I guess the ur text for this kind of book is The Orchid Thief. Yeah. Right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's this kind of like it's it's robbery in a crime, but there's not a whole bunch of dead kids or something. You know, I, yeah. I don't. Like, I, I, I mean, what, no one likes that, but I have a hard time reading about that. Even just getting up to yeah, the, to speed on that. So those those are that's my pick. Yeah, the true crime, like how gory and scary can you get? And like yes. nature, true yeah. crime is a good like. <laughs> there's a, there's yeah, a whole like subgenre of nature true crime that is much much more easy <laughs> yes, to I, read. I think. Yeah. I'm into, I also like um, literary true crime. Mm-hmm. I know uh, I've read a couple books that are about book thieves, mm-hmm. um, which are fascinating too. But The Feather Thief, I just was, I was reading the description. I realized like, this sounds like if Wes Anderson was ever to adapt a true crime story to a movie, it would be about a flautist stealing bird feathers to make yeah. fly fishing ties out of it. Like yeah, I, I, now I want that Wes Anderson's uh, uh, adaptation of The fe- <laughs> Feather Thief. I would, yeah, I would watch that. I would watch that. For Think sure. of all the tweed, Kim. Think how much tweed would be in that movie. <laughs> Who be would, an unbelievable uh, amount of tweed. Who would Bill Murray play? Oh, I mean, there's lots of. I, I think he. I think he plays in flashback the ancient, you know, the old Victorian um, naturalist who mm. collected these birds, like out in these weird islands. <laughs> like he's wearing a funny hat. He's got like a big, you know, net. Yeah. You know, he's swinging around like some sort of weird Victorian eyewear. I can see it. I, I, I got it, it. Yeah, I'm with you there. Cool. You got it. All right. Good pick. So those are those are my new book picks. Right. Yeah. All right. So now we're going to jump into our our weekly segment, our weekly theme. Um, and Alice and I, we talked about doing Mother's Day as a theme because this po- podcast will be coming out ahead of Mother's Day, and we won't record until after. And so Mother's Day is still a little bit of ways away, but we wanted to talk something about moms, and we hadn't really narrowed it down. So um, these will be kind of general picks that have something to do with moms in some way. Something to do with moms. Something okay, to yeah, do with right. moms. Not, right. necessar- not necessarily books to gift your mom, but books that are, have moms in them or moms adjacent. I wanted to do bad moms. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> bad moms. But okay. then we kind of felt bad about that one. So I, we didn't, we didn't do that, but 
that'll be a future podcast of books with bad moms in mm-hmm. them probably. Anyway, uh, my first suggestion is one that I just read earlier this year called Tell Me More by Kelly Corrigan. Uh, and this is a book of essays about the hard things we need to learn to say and why we why it's important for us to say them. So each of the essays is about one of those kind of difficult words or phrases or things. So yes and no and tell me more. And I'm just going to open the index because I forgot to write down what all of them are. Mm. I was wrong. Good enough. I love you. Um, And so they're just these really um, kind of specific personal essays about those things. Um, So she's writing about these like big universal kinds of conversations and and difficulties that a lot of people have but she has a she writes about them in such a specific and funny way that they're just really great um and the reason I kind of thought of this when we're thinking about moms is that she's a mom and she has two daughters and she writes really really beautifully about her daughters um not in a like fawning way like in a very honest loving way so she's honest about their flaws and her flaws as a mom and and their family um and then there's one essay in here that just like punched me in the heart it was so good Mm. um and it's called onward uh no that's not the title of that essay yes it's called onward Uh, and it's written as a letter to her friend liz who had very recently died of cancer um and leaving behind a a husband and a couple and two daughters i believe um and so it's a, a letter to liz after she's died just kind of giving her an update on like what is happening in their family and what is happening with all of their friends and how everyone is kind of coping and trying to trying to survive after losing this really wonderful woman. Um, and it's just like, I was reading this book and I was enjoying it and I was kind of laughing and it's funny and, you know, some like emotional bits and pieces and stuff. But this one, it just like, oh, it just like grabbed me and I, I sobbed through the whole thing. It was so good. Mm. Um, so I think this would be like, maybe this is a good like gift for moms kind of book, but I mostly picked it because it just had some really beautiful like family moments and discussions in it that I thought were really lovely. Um, so that book is Tell Me More by Kelly Corrigan. So I tipped my hand earlier that the, the tip I took was um, interesting women doing interesting things for moms. So if you're, your mm-hmm. mom likes that kind of stuff, uh, my first pick, and I assumed that backlist was all right. I hope, I hope, deep backlist is oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I picked, and it's a, it's a famous book um, in the genre of chef memoirs, but it's called Blood, Bones, and Butter, The Inadvertent Education of a Reluctant mm. Chef by Gabriel Hamilton. And it was incredible. So like I said before, that one of the things I like to read about in nonfiction is interesting people being obsessed with stuff. And Gabriel Hamilton mm-hmm. kind of fell backwards into... Um, being a chef and getting into the food industry service. There's interesting stuff about moms and families in here kind of in the beginning that I, I don't want to give away here. But she you know, fell backwards into the food industry and came at it as both from an unusual angle, like she basically walked into town one day because she needed a job because her parents had basically left her onto her own devices and she got a job you know, working in a you know, greasy spoon tourist trap and then just sort of found a niche in the food industry and now is the owner operator of prune which is a restaurant in new york city um i think she has another restaurant in new york now too i'm not exactly sure um but she also then talks about the strange ways in which being a woman in i mean it matters in every profession but especially in the the high the world of high-end sort of star chef stuff going on you know being a Mm -hmm. restaurant owner operator how she runs her business other uh, differently than um, the men who are in her field. Um, she's also uh, a lesbian, which also adds a wrinkle to her experience, which I thought was really interesting. Um, 
and she has a relationship with a man in this book and gets married and has kids how to be a mother and a working woman who also has a you know a more complicated sexual identity just a fascinating book about a fascinating industry wow. really beautifully written and the blurb I'm, I'm 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 not ashamed to say but after saying all that you, i sound like a real sophisticated person of the world who knows things about things i don't i don't know anything <laughs> about the world high end, world of high end dining but the the blurb that got me with was anthony bourdain who blurbed it saying simply the best memoir by a chef ever which if you know anything about anthony bourdain you that's know, a big deal that's a big deal he also is a huge book nerd right so that that especially he has his own hmm. imprint that they do books you know books about food oh, I yeah know yeah that. he um he 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 actually before his first book which was called oh kitchen confidential he wrote a really bad crime novel um before that book came out that went nowhere <laughs> so he got he, he his first his first literary um foray was crime novels that no one ever read his favorite book of all time is called the friends of eddie Coyle, which is one of the sort of early crime you know um crime mob novels it, pretty good book in itself but that that one that blurb got me because i knew he was a literary minded person who also mm -hmm. clearly if you know anything about him on tv and stuff is into food so for a book memoir recommendation about a chef bourdain's blurb matters to me i know a lot of people are and i myself include them don't really pay that much attention many attention to blurbs but bourdain saying simply the best chef memoir ever i was in and i haven't read many of these i've read a grand total i think of two chef memoirs and of those two this was the best so i can concur so far <laughs> with Andrew. i can validate his estimation um but that's blood bones and butter so you got a mom who likes food into dining i think it'd be really good about that also you know my my, my only my only sort of through line for moms that my mom's day picks are the you know, about interesting women doing interesting things so that's blood bones and butter yeah. by gabriel hamilton really good book yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one. I remember when it came out, I was like, I should definitely read that. And then I, you know, slips off the radar and falls away and you forget about it. But yeah, it first came out, I think around 2000, 2000 let me see here. Uh, yeah, 2001, 2001. Um, I yeah. did on audio. She reads it. Great audio. So that's that's nice. my that's my first uh, mom's day pick. Good pick. Um, so my second pick is called Stuck in the Middle with You, a memoir of parenting in three genders by Jennifer Finney Boylan. Um, and Jennifer Finney Boylan is a transgender woman who wrote about her transition from James to Jennifer in one of her previous books. Um, I can't remember the title now, but this book is about her transition and the effect that that had on her family, her wife and her two sons. Um, so it's it's about what being transgender has meant as a parent and what it, what it meant to be a parent as a husband and a father and then transitioning to a woman. What does that mean for her version of parenthood now, does it does it change who she is as a parent to be a father and then become a mother and all of those different things? And so it's it's um and it's also about how that affected her family, her wife and her her sons, um, how they they um when she is kind of going through the period of transition, they they ask what should they what should, her sons ask what the, should they call her because mommy and mommy would be confusing, um, and they eventually settle on calling him or her Maddie. Um, which I thought of mommy and daddy, um, which I thought was really, just really sweet. That's really clever. I like that. Yeah. Um, so the book is kind of in three sections. One, um, when she, when she is a man and then one kind of during the transition period and then one as a mother now and all of that. Um, and just, um, one of the things I liked about it is that there's not a lot of, it doesn't talk a lot about like the, the, 
her experience of the transition, like it's very much about her experience of as of parenthood and about the experiences that her family was having. Um, Cause you can read about the, the transition and all of that in her previous book. So I liked that it was really focused on family and, and her family in particular. Um, the only thing about the book that I didn't really like was that um, in between each section, there are some of these interviews with other people about parenting and families. Um, and some of them were interesting and some of them were sort of not really. Um, so I ended up skimming those a little bit, but like the core of the book, which is about her and her family is, is really, really good. And just um, being really empathetic and interesting and, and, and just a lot about what parenthood is and what it means to parents and questions. I don't have kids myself, but the kind of questions about like our decisions you're making, are they going to screw your kids up? <laughs> and, Kim, Kim, uh, you're scaring the junk out of me. My kids are in the next room. This is the worst. This is the hardest questions. No doubt about it. Yeah. Right. And so it kind of grapples with that in a very, um, I mean like every parent asks that question, but there she's asking it in a very specific way. Like does my, gender transition, something that was really important and I had to do. How does that affect my kids? And and showing just kind of what that is about. So it was really, really fascinating. I just, it was beautifully written and just very, very empathetic and and interesting. Um, So that is Stuck in the Middle with You, a memoir of parenting in three genders by Jennifer Finney Boylan. That sounds really, is that, is that a newer title? No, this one's older. Uh, I don't remember what year, but no, it's been out for quite a while. Okay. I'm writing that down. Uh, I'll cry through that one later. Um, really when, when, when I'm not recording into a microphone. Um, my pick, I'm on the same tip, um, Hammerhead by Nina McLaughlin. Have you heard of this book? Mm. Maybe you have. Yes, I loved it. Yes. Okay, good. So I'm horribly biased for a couple reasons. One is that um, this was recommended to me by my, my coworker, Jen Northington, who's the host of our Get Book podcast. She tipped me off to it. And I don't remember how, but I, I read it. I think I had a pre-pub copy. And then Nina came on my old podcast called Reading Lives which mm. was great. And she was, she's a book nerd, but she was also, so here's the story. She was, um, she worked for a Boston newspaper for a decade, her job out of school. She's a journalist. Uh, you don't know anything about that, Kim, working as a journalist <laughs> and then moving into a different job. You wouldn't know anything about that. Um, and so but didn't feel like she w- was enjoying it. Felt like it was just a rat race, same thing day after day. One day she reads, she sees an ad on Craigslist for here's the job the carpenter's assistant colon women strongly encouraged to apply so for whatever reason i won't spoil it she gets the book she decides she's she's gonna follow up on the ad this is a field that's 99 percent men um which maybe you're not surprised to hear but this is the story of her transitioning from being a journalist to a carpenter and what that entails, what carpentry is like, what she, why she was doing it, how she inspired, what she learned. There are little uh, literary epigraphs that begin each section. Mm-hmm. She has a journalist's eye, which is fascinating. And um, I said, I said before that I'm interested in people who are obsessed with things. Well, I don't know that she's obsessed. I mean, carpenters are, I guess, necessarily expert with their tools. So that what a tool does, how you use it, how it's constructed, matters. But she then has the journalist's eye for detail and story to really give a non-expert like you're never going to be as in, you're never going to be interested in like an all as you will be reading Hammerhead by yeah. Nina McLaughlin it's not very long it's beautiful um i wouldn't say you've read it so you can t- it's not like it's not like gut-wrenching like wild one of those go find yourself kind of books mm-hmm. it's it's much more I don't know. There, there's a certain utilitarian quality to it, which sounds—it sounds like a put down, but I don't—I don't think that it is. It's like 
this is how it happened and this is what carpentry is like and here's what's interesting about carpentry and I'm interested in it and I like it and I don't know. It was one of those midlife crisis books that doesn't come across as a crisis, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I just thought yeah, it was really yeah, interesting. She, she gets out of journalism because she's like not happy doing it, but it's yeah. like it's not – like in wild, right? Like the way that that happens is like her entire life is just like right. sort of falling apart. And there's this like huge thing. And that's not what happens here. Like she just no. wants to do something different. And so, and it's a lot about work and about like the yes. the value that you put into the world and the, the value you put into the things that you do. Um, and so, yeah, it's not wrenching it, but it's very thoughtful and um, definitely like makes you think about work in a different way, I think. Um, yeah, and I guess that yeah. that relates to one of my meta interests, which is about work. Like, I'm interested in how people think about the work. I'm interested in thinking about my own work and doing is, am I doing what I want to be doing and what I should be doing? Am I a good coworker? Am I a good boss? Am I a good employee? All those sorts of things. And this is really, you know, at, the, at a very sort of like, you know, well, I mean, <laughs> it's weird. You know, Jesus is a carpenter. Like, it's kind of like this ultimate, like, hands-on, salt-of-the-earth mm-hmm. kind of job that's been done for probably as long as there have been humans, like, looking at tools. Like, hey, there's some wood. We can do something with that. Like, so it's this very elemental um, profession that has a modern existence, but it's very, it's both art and craft. Um, it's a business and a calling. It, I, I thought it was great. Uh, and again, I don't know. I think sometimes for me, this is a selling point. Not very long. 240 pages. So that's another... You know, that's as you're buying a gift for a mother figure or a mother person, um, not too long is sometimes nice yeah. uh, to give to somebody. So that, that's a secondary concern. But Hammer, unfortunately, and this is a great injustice, no audio version, Kim. I don't like that. No audio version? It's not, it's not, it's not very often you hear a book published by, a, you know, this is Norton. This isn't, no, you know, an indie yeah. press. This, now, I don't know. So this came out, I want to say five or six years ago. Um, yeah, so it's been a, a bit. I, I don't know why. It's it's huh. unusual now that a book um, yeah. doesn't make it into audio. So maybe there's something else going on. There's a rights problem. Who knows? But that's fair warning. Huh. No audio version. Trust me, I looked for Interesting. it. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so. Interesting. Well, that is actually, that is an excellent transition into kind of our third segment. Um, since Jeff is here, I thought it would really be interesting to talk to him about something that he's mentioned on it or that you have mentioned. I don't know. I, oh, I talk, like I talk I'm all the time, Kim. I talk Gosh. all the time about stuff all the time. So I'm sure I've, I've mentioned oh. another show. I've meant, I actually did a, a version of oh. the audiobooks newsletter about this um, a while ago. My favorite yes. audiobooks about work. So I think what Kim the, is... So the Busman's MBA. The Busman's yes, MBA. is what I'm trying to get to. Yeah. Uh, so I was telling Kim before we started recording, I called the Busman, Busman's MBA because... I know the phrase busman's holiday, which I I believe means uh, a vacation you take kind of on the cheap. You know, you're doing it, you're doing just, you're just trying to make it happen. And I think that comes from the fact that busmen don't make very much money over in jolly old England. So you kind of have to make do with what you've got. I could be horribly wrong about that. It could be like Joey Tribbiani saying, you know, it's a moo point, a cow's opinion. Like it makes sense just from the completely opposite (laughs) way. I'm afraid that's what I might be doing here, but you know what? I don't care. It works for me. But so, yeah. uh, so we've been doing this site for, God, Kim, how long? It's been almost, it'll be seven years in October uh, is when yep. Book Riot launched. Um, started my my friend and now co-founder Clint. Um, he first pitched me the idea 
this time eight years ago. So we had about six months before we actually started talking about to actually getting the site up and launch, which now seems insane that I say that out loud that it only take us six yeah. months to do it. But it, it was a different time. It was just a WordPress site, blah, blah, blah. But I was a former academic, yeah. or I, at the time I was an academic, I was teaching you know, introductory comp and composition um, and introductory literature in New York. Uh, I had a uh, four-week-old son. Um, I was living in a tiny apartment um, that m- my partner and I, we both loved, but there we were. And Clint has an MBA, um, had worked for a startup that had gotten sold before and was looking around for something else to do. So we started the site. And um, through a great leap of faith that now seems almost foolhardy in its size that he trusted me to be his partner to do this, we started a company. (laughs) And I didn't know anything about doing a company. And frankly, um, like many English majors out there, I would say I had a fair amount of bias against people who worked for businesses um, or the idea of being a business person. Uh, the man in the gray mm. suit writ large. Um, I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone out there, but there I was. Uh, I'll admit that now. But being the inveterate reader that I am and was, I was like, okay, well, there's got to be books about this stuff. So I be, I have been for, I'd say, seven years now, really, trying to teach myself and learn how to be a good boss, a good business person, how to make good decisions, how to be a good employer and a good employee, how to serve clients, how to serve readers, how to serve all the people. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, make a good, sustainable, profitable, but also humane business, um, which is a tricky needle to thread. Um, and yeah. I've read a lot of books. Some of them have been great. Some of them have been terrifying. Some of them have been, most of them have been pretty middling. Um, but if you want to hear, what do you want to hear, Kim? What would you like me to, do you want to give me my top three or what do you, what do you want to know? I kind of want to hear kind of when you started, what it is you were trying to learn. And then as you kind of got into it a little bit, some of the ones that have really stuck out and been really important or influential, um, yeah, either I, to I, you personally or to like how Book Riot runs and exists. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess what I wanted to know, I, I wasn't that worried, rightly or wrongly, about like the taxes and accountants and law stuff, because Clint has a real, like for the, the, he's COO, so operations are his job. I'm CEO, which doesn't mean anything except, mm-hmm. you know, when we need to flip a coin, I'm the heads or tails call a lot of times, but I'm in charge of product, you know, the podcast, the newsletters, what what actually people are seeing on the site. So I, one thing oh. I wanted to figure out was how to deal with people that you have to say yes and no to things too. Call them employees, call them whatever, direct reports, whatever. Like, how do you do the thing where you're not an, you're not the boss that you know people grinch about all the time? Does that make sense? Like, I didn't want to be bad yeah. to work mm-hmm. for. Um, part of it was just because I don't like people not to like me, but also I thought you know if the employees are happy, they probably have a good, a good chance of doing okay. Yeah. Um. So that was, I think that was probably the first thing I wanted to know is like. How do you do this in a humane way? And this is going to sound dumb. No, this is not dumb. This is just what happened. So the the first thing that I actually got me started was I was listening to this podcast that still exists. Um, I don't listen to it anymore because it's kind of wandered from what I originally liked it for. It's called Back to Work, hmm. uh, hosted by Dan Benjamin and Merlin Mann. And they're two guys who had left the corporate world to sort of freelance, do their own thing. And they were talking about how hard it is to be to live life as a person who does work in a business and also be a responsible human being. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to that show. I don't even remember how I got into it, but 
I was listening to it while we were getting the show, uh, this, this show, the site put together. You know, I was listening to it while I was walking Ames, my son, you know, in his trying to get him to go to sleep, whatever, on my headphones. Um, and they started cluing me onto some books that they liked. And one of the first ones I read was called Getting Things Done by David mm-hmm. Allen, which you've probably heard other people talk about. That is such a which good Which was book. one thing I needed to which I needed to figure out because I had a lot of new tasks to do in a different, I never did have to do tasks before when an academic, you know, on my own schedule, I didn't have a lot of little things to do. Like it usually is like my classes and my research. So I had two big buckets yeah. I could put things in. But once we were getting the site put together, we had a million different things that were going at a million different paces and getting things done is a philosophy, a system for being a knowledge worker and, you know, getting stuff done. Is it getting things done? Well titled SEO, maybe. Um, <laughs> So you read it too, so you know what it's about. But like, yeah, it's how how to keep your head on straight if you have more to do than can be handled in a simple you know line item to do list, which most of us do. Then what what's your next step after that? And mm-hmm. I think it's actually pretty complicated. And I, I call myself um, uh, a recovering productivity a productive person because I'm ne- I'm never gonna be on the other side of my personal Rubicon about being productive, I fall off and on the wagon for getting things done. I have my own system that's kind of a variant using OmniFocus. But that sort of got me thinking about a lot of different things about how to keep your calm, how to prioritize, how to organize, how to communicate deadlines and expectations of other people. Yeah. And that kind of got me off to the races um, from there. Did I, did I characterize that one fairly, would you say? Yeah, I think done? so. Yeah, getting things done, it's just, it's... A suggestion for personal productivity and, and yeah. a system for keeping things organized. Like the idea is everything, you shouldn't store anything in your head. That's everything right. should be written down and it needs to be written down in places where you're going to remember to find it again. Um, and yeah, that's a trusted like, system. Use a trusted system. You do not yeah. rely upon your brain to remember th- things. Use your brain to do things, which I think is yeah. a useful heuristic. It's a Paper good one, is yeah. way better. Um, weirdly, that book came out before sort of the digital productivity revolution. So the 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 book that I read is all about having all these binders and stuff. Yeah. Where, excuse me, uh, in subsequent versions, it's more about you know there's all these systems. I think he has one that I don't even remember which software system he himself kind of endorses. I don't know if you have skin in the game in that one or not. But OmniFocus, where I got into that, I proselytize, spread the good word of getting things done. Um, we use it at work uh, here. Uh, we use. Asana for our corporate task management system, project management, but mm. a lot of us still use OmniFocus for individual, you know, personal tasks. My, sure. All my to-dos go into OmniFocus, whether it's home, school, leisure, whatever, incoming stuff from other people at the company coming through Asana, then I dump in OmniFocus. But that was thing that that was sort of step zero. It's like how just to get the work done in a way that doesn't make you crazy. From there I went a lot of different directions. Um I'm interested in creativity, how to solve problems. I'm interested in how to deal with people. One thing I was scared about, and I still remain scared to some degree about it, but I feel a lot better about it, is the 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 larger the large category of what we would call negotiation. Because mm. you know, like you watch Wall Street or whatever, something like that, you always think like someone's out to, or uh, Glenn Gary Gun Ross, someone's out to get you. And people are out to get you. So how you how are you not the sucker? How are you not the lolly? How do you sort of figure out what the <laughs> what the way to do that is? And you know, I don't have it in front of me, but the book is I, I don't have the authors in front of me. It's just coming to this so I'm saying this. Um Getting to Yes is the name of the book, and it's about negotiation, ethical negotiation, where you use external principles, basically like what third principle out there can we use to come to some sort of agreement on you know this thing that we're dealing with here. And that one basically is like if you're buying widgets and I'm selling widgets and they want to know how much we want to pay, like how do we decide? 
well, you could just sort of run the hardest deal you can, get the best deal you can, or you could do this thing called principled negotiation where you say, and principle doesn't mean like you're ethical or anything like that, but you're saying you look for an outside principle that you both can agree on. Well, those people over there are selling widgets for this much, so if you buy them from me, that's a good place to start. And it talks about, you know, what are strategies for negotiation, how you can get most out of a negotiation, how you, how you can have negotiations where both people come away feeling satisfied and happy with the negotiation. And in our business, you know, a lot of what we do is sell advertising to publishers. And there aren't that many publishers out there. There's five big ones. You may have heard of them. They're conveniently called the big five. And we do a lot of business with them over time. So you're not, you don't, it doesn't serve your interest to like scam them for one deal because you want them to come back. Right. You have, mm-hmm. so one, one thing is like, how are you have multi, how are your relationships over time with people and getting to negotiations? And and there's this menace question too, that you know, actually you do a, a lot of negotiation in your life. If it's not quote unquote in a negotiating room, negotiating setting, you know, what movie do you and your partner want to go see? Often a negotiation. Uh, yeah. What are we doing for Christmas with the in-laws? Uh, yeah. where, you know, what is the rent for your apartment going to be in the next time? Like, so we've a lot of our time is actually spent negotiating, and I found a lot of those things really, really helpful. And not only that, having um, I think everyone in the company has at least heard of the book, but Rebecca and Clint and I, especially when we're talking about certain things, can use the language of that book when we're negotiating among ourselves. Like, what's our sure. external principle? What's our BATNA? Which is a what's a um, acronym means best alternative to no agreement. You know, it's helpful to know what someone's if you're negotiating someone if they don't make a deal with you, what then are they going to do? If they have sure. a really good alternative, then you can't get as good of a deal. If they've got no alternative, then you can get you know generally more for that thing in a fair kind of way. So that one I've used all the time. Michelle, my partner's read that. Um, we've recommended to a lot of people in all kinds of businesses. Huh, and frankly, I think it transcends business. Um, that one's really good too. Another one that's been really transformative. In fact, we redid how we do our direct reporting for the company um, after um, – Rebecca and I both, I think simultaneously, or one recommend to the other, I don't remember, read this book called Radical Candor by Kim Scott, hmm. which is, um, she was, she now runs a company that it's business consulting, but for a long time, she was in charge of Google's global AdSense unit. And if you know anything about how Google makes money, that is a big deal. Like 90% yeah. of their business is AdSense. And she came up with a system, it's called Radical Candor where, you know, the nut, it sounds dumb, but like, this is one thing I found about business books, Kim, the dumber and more obvious the thing is, the more, the harder it is to actually do because it's so obvious that that's why we're talking about it. And her thing Mm -hmm. is tell the truth to people you work with. Sounds dumb, sounds super dumb, but it is hard to tell the people you work with the truth, especially when it comes to criticism, as she calls it guidance, which I think is a helpful reframing. But you know, one thing that happens in businesses, I'm told, but I know it happens in our business, our, in our in our particular company, is that someone will do something you don't like that bothers you, is unhelpful, and you'll sit on it because you don't want to have the conversation. You're not sure how to do it, and then something else happens, and something else happens, and then something else. Happens. So, two, one of two things happen in those situations. One thing is eventually it gets to the boiling point where you explode, and it's like all the yeah. pizza comes out of the refrigerator. That happens, <laughs> or you never say anything and you're miserable and you're mad about that thing forever. Those are your two choices. Both of those lollipops are pretty fuzzy. So don't do that. Um, what you should do is stupidly and obviously and really hard, which yeah. is to tell the truth. And she talks about a structure, which we use. where We have basically if you report to someone and everyone here reports to someone, you have a weekly call where you talk about what's going on. And 
the person who is the boss in the situation listens. It's the it's the employee's basically agenda, um, and they are encouraged. And one thing we work on is they've got a problem with their boss, they should tell it then. And the earlier, the better. And then the boss isn't really supposed to defend themselves. They're supposed to say yes. They can come back and talk about it later. Uh, but, you know, basically by modeling yeah. that, you know, the people in charge want, not not only can hear criticism, but want to hear criticism. Back to, is your job to say when something is going wrong? Uh, I think it's really helpful. And it wasn't easy to get started. And it continues yeah, not to be easy yeah. all the time. But I think it's really been helpful. And that one, you know, we have everyone in the company read it. It structures how we do our direct reports. Um, oh, interesting. I didn't know that. It's been fascinating. Uh, so that one's been really good too. Uh, I'm sure there's other ones I'm going to think about. Yeah, I think those are probably the ones where if if I, you know, if I had sort of, you know, um, if I met Rufus with the telephone booth and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I was, <laughs> I was coming to my earlier self to say, and I had, if I could bring four books with me, I think, I think I'd have Radical Candor, Getting to Yes, Getting Things Done. And then I think after that, those will be my top three. After that, you can go a lot of different directions. This one is a little bit of a idiosyncratic one. I also like, I think one thing I've learned since I have the executive role, which you know, executive only means in this sort of in way, it means you make a decision. Like a lot of decisions, yeah. I help make decisions at the top level. Um, Decision-making is hard. And there are some pretty standard biases, mistakes people made in making decisions. So the, the issue of decision-making, I think, is very interesting. So I do a lot of for fun and also for edification about behavioral economics. Um, so Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman is the Bible of that. But I also like the work of um, Richard Thaler. He wrote um, Anomalies, which is his newest one, but also Making Behavior, which is about the history of behavioral economics, sort of the cognitive biases and decision errors that are sort of built into the way humans think endowment effect, recency bias, availability bias, you know, all kinds of things like that. Our, our, our statistical minds are pretty bad. Um, and at, at the level we are now, I like to make as few decisions as possible. But when we do have a decision to make that's a big one, I like to not screw it up, Kim. So that's, uh, that's I, the dream. I, that's the dream. Not to make decisions and don't make too many hard decisions. But if you have a hard decision to make, do not screw it up in a predictable and easily avoidable way. Um, yeah. So if you are into that, I mean, I don't know if you, have you done any of the behavioral economic stuff? Have you read any of that stuff? Um, gosh, a little bit, but I'm I'm totally blanking on titles. When I think about business books and productivity books, I often go to stuff that's about like technology and mindfulness. Yes. And right. um, so that's kind of the niche that I always had down. Um, so you have a rec for me? Give me one of those. What, what do you like best? Uh, my favorite is uh, The Distraction Addiction by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. Mm. Uh, and he is a, um, he has a goofy title. I think it's like, it's not futurist, but it's something kind of like that. Um, and I can't remember. But Wait, so, I think I know that dude. Or no, I mean, I know who, of that guy. Anyway, I don't know. Matter. So Distraction yeah. Addiction is his first book. He wrote another one more recently called Rest, which is about the importance of like rest in being a creative mm. and productive person. But Distraction Addiction is, is about mindfulness and technology. So he, t he doesn't advocate getting rid of your technology, but he advocates being mindful about the way you used it. And so he, he, t he uses some like Buddhist principles and the idea of the monkey mind. Um, as, as, and that's how technology where monkey, our monkey mind wants to go everywhere and technology like enables us to do that. And we need to slow it down and make decisions. And so actually, after I read that book, I turned every notification on my phone off, <laughs> except for 
text messages and phone calls. Um, mm-hmm. And so like, I get almost no phone notifications because they were making me just like a distracted person. And every time I saw one, it sent me off of whatever I was doing. Um, and it was based on a lot of the principles in that book about like having to make mm-hmm. mindful choices about the ways you allow technology to interrupt you and getting rid of it. So that's that's probably my favorite one. Mm-hmm. Um, the company-wide book we're doing right now, we don't really have like a company book club, but every now and again, we recommend people read a certain thing. The one we're doing right now is sounds related to that. It's called Bored and Brilliant. Um, by Manoush oh, yeah, Zamarodi, um, which came out in the fall, which it's, it doesn't sound like it's, it's not exactly the same, but it's sort of similar insofar it's as... It's in the same, yeah. Yeah, it's in the same pocket, but it's more about like turning stuff off to have time to think, be bored, space mm-hmm. out. You know, we, the one of the shorthands we use at, at work is, you know, I had a shower idea about something. And, yeah. <coughs> excuse me. Really, and you're in the shower, you're not doing anything else except taking a shower, which doesn't take a, it's not a huge cognitive load, at least not for me. And so your brain has time to think about other things. And so your brain will often wander to the thing that's bothering you, something that's interesting, where you're out, you know, you're on your laptop, you're out walking around, whatever, you're listening to a podcast, you're like, like us or something else like that. Your brain has something to do. But when your brain doesn't have something to do, it does what brains do, which is think, which is fascinating. And a lot of interesting things can happen there too. Yeah, that's a really good one. I I liked that book a lot. Um, yeah, it's interesting to think about like what, like you said, what you do when you don't have anything else. So I think one of the, so the book has a bunch of challenges in it. And I think one of them is to like commute in silence or something like that. Yes. Um, and I have, I started doing that. I try to, not every, like one commute a day or like a couple a week, just not have anything playing. Um and it's great. So yeah, it's so nice. To, mm. I, my commute's not long. It's like 20 minutes or something. Um, but just like 20 minutes of silence is the best. Um, so yeah, I really is, like that book. It is amazing. Because I got into audiobooks and podcasts on the subway. Mm-hmm. If you're on the subway for an hour, <clears throat> excuse my my cold's acting up. Um, it's entertaining. Like it's fun. So I actually, it's, it's, I find it difficult. I find it real hard um, to do... 20 minutes of walking or I don't have a commute now basically either. So what am I doing? But I'm not saying it's not good. I, it's even more yeah. difficult for me than it was when I was in New York. So anyway, there, so that's bored and brilliant. Um, but th- those are my, that's my bus. And it's a continuing effort. Like I think as much as anything, I do it as a way uh, to keep thinking about work mm-hmm. as much as anything is like just to remind myself that it's something I want to be overtly worried about all the time and not, I'm never done. So yeah, looking for a new book, finding something else interesting to think about is is almost more of a practice to like remind myself you're not good at this. You know, you're still a lot to learn. Like, yeah, keep an open mind about getting better. So that I think that's as much as and anything. Anything I've learned has been helpful. But that idea of like <clears throat> you're not done has been so so helpful that mm-hmm. uh, I, I keep it. I keep that. I'm as much looking for a reason to think about what I'm working on as to like come up with some great insight that someone's giving to me. I, I don't actually find that as helpful as the idea of <clears throat> you, you get better. Just keep trying. Yeah. Keep trying to make this thing as good as you can. Very cool. That was really interesting. Thank you for spending some time talking about that. I've always wanted to just oh, my pleasure. I can talk about, about it all day. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all day. 
All right. So we're going to close out the podcast real quick with just what we're reading right now. Um, So right now I just finished reading Odd Girl Out by Laura James, uh, which is a memoir about a woman who was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder in her her 40s. Um, So the memoir is about what it is like to get a diagnosis like that in your 40s and what it kind of means and how you process that and also what it was to grow up not being able to really understand why she was different and really articulate that to people. Um, And part of what I really loved about it was um, she's very thoughtful and very honest about um, what has this has done and continues to do to her marriage and how difficult it can be for her husband to both understand, um, understand who she is with her autism and also the, the ways in which they work together in the ways in which that it, it's part of who she is and it makes her the person that she is that he loves. And so it's very, it's really good and really digs into some of that. So I just finished that one and I really liked it. Um, Odd Girl Out by Laura James. Mine's not dissimilar. Um, mine's called The Power of Different. Uh, the subtitle is The Link Between Disorder and Genius by Gail Saltz, um, who is a neuroscientist. Ooh. But um, she's looking at latest, you know, the most recent scientific thinking we have about what you would call historically brain quote-unquote problems, um, ADD, anxiety, depression, but then how they also have another side to them, which is they unlock, they enable, they require people with these quote-unquote problems to think differently, and that how specific deficits in certain areas of the brain can be associated with outsized potential and talents in other areas of the brain. I'm only two chapters into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first main chapter after the introduction is about dyslexia, which is not something I've ever really thought about that much, um, except that I know what it is. Yeah. But talking about what dyslexia is, what it, what's happening in the brain, but then also what else it allows, requires the brain to do to make sense of the world. Just So I'm very a neophyte learner, but apparently people who have dyslexia, a lot of them at least, have very acute peripheral vision, apparently. And it's not exactly clear if it's Hmm. because of or despite or in reaction to the dyslexia bit, but so that they can see a whole system and understand a whole system at a glance a lot easier than, you know, um, average people like like me. Um, They have a harder Hmm. time looking at arbitrary sets of symbols and memorizing them. Basically, as far as I understand, at least so far, so I'm so sorry if you know out there more about uh, dyslexia than I do, but dyslexia is a a short-term memory problem. So if I see the word that says, um, well, let's say dyslexia, I sort of remember the word order for long enough for my brain to process and file, like, what does dyslexia mean? Sort of go reference what that word is in my memory. Whereas if you're dyslexic, Basically, you have a short-term memory problem where you can't remember the order of the letters in that word you're trying to understand. So you've got to go re- you've got to go piece it back together character by character, where most of us who read fluently, we kind of just look at a word. We don't, we're not actually reading the word. We're just sort of recognizing that set of characters that go together all at once. But if you're mm-hmm. dyslexic, you've got to go put it back together, um, which makes reading very difficult, very difficult to identify, you know, measure intelligence is uh, writ large are usually pretty bad suspect at best. But in this situation, it makes it even more difficult because most of our tests of intelligence are quote unquote reading tests. Even if they're not about reading they're you know, you got to read a word problem. You got to mm-hmm. read something else like that. Um, but then, the, you know, dyslexic can do have tend to have better long-term memory, which is interesting. Um, and I guess each, uh, I guess I know each chapter takes a stigmatized brain disorder 
and talks about it not just as being a pathology, but just being a difference that has a pro and a con, um, which I think is really interesting. Interesting. And I got on this one from Neurotribes by Steve Silberman, um, which is a book that really opened my eyes, which is about um, autism spectrum disorders and thinking about them not as disorders, yeah. but as differences, um, as, you know, as, 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 a, as a being among a range of heterogeneous possibilities rather than a pathology um, really changed my understanding of how those things work. So I got interested in this. So that's Power of Different by Gail Saltz. Pretty technical so far, which may or may not be bad, but just fair warning. Yeah, Laura James actually mentions Neurotribes and interviews the author of that book quite a bit in mm-hmm. hers. Um, so yeah, interesting kind of connections all around. Yeah, um, interesting connection, yeah. All right, so before we go, I just want to remind you that Book Riot is giving away 15 of the best new mysteries of the year so far, um, all from diverse authors, so people of color and LGBTQ authors. Um, that giveaway is going to be open until May 9th, and so um, you can go to bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway to enter. Um, it sounds super cool, and I'm really jealous that I can't enter because I work for Book Riot. So. <laughs> I know, it's too bad, right? That's the one it's thing okay. about the giveaways. We're, we're, we're locked out. Yeah. All right. So you can find both of us on social media. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Kim the Dork and Jeff is at the Jeff O'Neill. I got that right. Yes. Yes, you did. I am the Jeff O'Neill indeed. Excellent. Um, and if you feel so inclined, please pop in and rate and review this podcast on iTunes so that people can find us more easily and subscribe so that you can get new episodes the minute that they come out. And I want to thank Jeff for jumping in and co-hosting this week. It was really fun to chat with you. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. It was my treat. Absolutely. Excellent. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. So 